Thank you for tuning into sermons from Liberty Baptist Church in Newport Beach, California. Our goal is to help you know God more and take the next step in your spiritual journey, no matter where you're at. If you have questions about God or about Liberty, you can connect with us at libertybaptistchurch.org. We pray that the Lord will use this message to be a help and encouragement in your life. So we touched on a little bit as far as like long-term savings and retirement. And so uh, this session, I, I, I will we'll be doing a much more deep dive on a very specific topic, the topic of investing. And uh, I, I, what I feel like is there's a misconception about investing in the minds of a, a lot of people. I, I think a lot of people assume that if you're going to be a good investor, that means you've got to have like a doctorate in finance and you've got to have like seven screens and, you know, know all these crazy terminology and have some like secret inside info on all these companies or else you're never going to be able to be a good uh, investor. And, and the reality is it, that's not true at all. Um, I would say really just about everybody can be a successful investor because successful investing is really a component of following some time-tested principles. When we look at the evidence of investing over uh, 100 years plus in America, there's certain things that we've learned along the way and there's certain principles and rules that we can apply to help us stay the course. And really, uh, at the end of the day, it's, it's not as complicated as all that. I think sometimes people in the industry want to make it seem like it's super complicated so that you have to like listen to them or use them to, to, in, in order to, to feel like you have a chance. Um, but today, I'm going to just give you some practical rules. These are probably not comprehensive, like every single rule you need to know for investing. But in my mind, these are six of the most important rules and principles that will help you to have success for the long term in investing. So let's jump right into it with uh, number one. Number one, check your emotions at the door. Check your emotions at the door. This is this is this may be actually the most important rule of them all, honestly. Check your emotions at the door. See, we are emotional creatures by nature. That's the way God has designed us. And that's a good thing, all right? Uh, Our emotions are not a bad thing. They are a good thing. However, when it comes to this area of investing, our emotions are not very helpful for our decision-making process. And and I'll illustrate that for you here in a second. So um, when it comes to investing, we got to be careful not to be led by emotion. And and it's a very easy thing to be led by, uh, even if we're not... uh, even if we're not necessarily a very emotional uh, person uh, in our personality. So letter A here, two emotions guide our investment decisions. So really, the investment decisions that we make are guided by two different emotions, fear and greed. Fear and greed. Now, greed is what drives us to want to get the best return possible. I'm going to invest, and I want to make as much money as possible. That's greed, right? And of course we do. We want to make as much money as possible. Who wouldn't? But fear is that component that wants us to avoid a loss. I don't want to lose any money. I don't want to see my account go down in value. So I want to make as much as possible, greed, but I don't want to lose at all, ever. And that's fear. And the problem is, in order to be a successful investor, we're going to have to be okay and comfortable with times where our account will will drop in value as the nature of the market um, as that is the nature of the market. So greed, best return possible, fear, avoid a loss. And here's what happens. And actually, I'll, I want to, you'll forgive my, my, my poor artistic skills here, but uh, if you can see this over here, the, the, the market goes through a cycle, the economic cycle, and it looks something like this, okay? 
it's, it's, okay, and this is a very smooth version of it, okay? Uh, what happens? The market goes up and then it's down and up and then we have expansion and then we have a recession. Then we have expansion and we have a recession. And over time, there is growth. The long-term trajectory is upwards, but along the way, there's uh, a lot of ups and downs, okay? That's, that's just the nature of the market. And sometimes the expansions are really long and sometimes they're really short. Sometimes the recessions are really steep. Sometimes they're more gradual. It doesn't always look like this nice little smooth line that I've, I've drawn here. But the idea is this, greed and fear get us into a cycle where we do the exact opposite of what we should do. Now, what is the mantra of successful investing? You need to buy low and sell high, okay? So as we look at this little line here, where should we be buying? Here, low, right? When it's down, buy low, and then we need to sell where? Sell high, right, at the top. But greed and fear cause us to do the exact opposite. So here's how this works. The market is up. Okay, this particular stock is up. This industry is up. Have you heard about such and such? You need to invest. It returned 20% last year. It doubled in three months. This is the time to get in. And usually greed is going to cause us to want to buy when things are towards the top because we, we don't want to miss out, right? If it's doing so well, I want some of that, right? But conversely, when all of a sudden we go into a recession and it's coronavirus or it's the financial crisis of 2008 and stocks are dropping and people are losing their jobs and people are on the news saying, uh-oh, it's looking really bad, what are we doing? Oh, look at my 401k. It just went down $10,000. I just dropped 20% last year. Uh-oh, fear, right? I don't want to lose anymore. This is bad. I need to get out now. And so what does fear and greed cause us to do? Buy high, sell low. And then you continue to do that over and over again until you have no more money left, right? <laughs> fear and greed. So, so how do we combat this? Well, as we've said, we have to check our emotions at the door. Uh, let me give you two great examples of greed and fear. Back in the late 90s, early 2000s, there was something called the tech bubble, if you remember that, okay? Maybe you lived through the tech bubble, maybe you remember very poignantly how that all shaped out. What had happened? The internet came along and it promised to revolutionize business, and so all these technological companies were like, wow, this is the next big thing. You need to invest in tech, you need to buy these tech stocks, you need to, to flood all these startup uh, companies with cash because this is going to take us into the future. If you're not investing in tech, you are an idiot because look at this, 80% return doubled last year. This company went up 10 times in value. And a lot of people just got swept up in it. Like, wow, this must be the thing. I must get on board. If I'm not investing in tech, I am missing out on these great returns. But it was called the tech bubble for a reason, because bubbles burst, right? And eventually people realized, oh, we're paying X for all these companies, and it's trading up here, but it's not worth that. It's worth like down here. And then when it dropped, of course, a lot of people got burned in the process. Well, it was greed, okay? In the, in the moment, it's very hard to see because it's like, wow, it seems like the smart play here is to get on board with what's working, right? Isn't that the best thing to do with my money? And then it was, it was motivated by greed. Uh, but by greed. And then fear, uh, the Great Recession, 2008, 2009, housing crisis, uh, foreclosures, auto bailout. We have Wall Street firms that are going out of business and uh, you know, job, jobless rates are soaring. And all throughout that, there was a lot of panic because we, we didn't know what we were going through. I mean, what is this thing? When is it going to end? 
and the market literally got slashed in half. The stock market was down about 50% at the very worst part. Now, that's a very difficult thing to stomach as an investor. When you see your account go down and down and down and down, and this is my life savings, and now I have half of what I had just a few months ago, that's very difficult to, 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 to stay invested because there's a lot of fear involved. But really, if we were to go back to those moments in time, knowing what you know today, at the height of the tech bubble, what would you have been doing with your tech stocks? Sell, right? Cash them out. And at the bottom of the financial crisis in 2008, 2009, when the market was at its very lowest, what would you have liked to have done with stocks? Buy, because in the years following, man, did they roar back, right? But it's difficult. It's easy for us to you know, look back in hindsight, like, oh yeah, yeah, I would have done this, I would have done that. But in the moment, it's a very different thing. We just went through it with coronavirus, right? Stock market plummeted down by about 30% very, very quickly. And then it came rocketing right back. And so in that moment, if greed and fear came into play, it could cause us to make some, some poor decisions. So I believe this quote is in your, your booklet there by Warren Buffett, be fearful when others are greedy and greedy when others are fearful. You gotta do the opposite of what the crowd is doing. We tend to get into this herd mentality. It's kind of like somebody shouting fire in an auditorium. Everybody just gets up and runs for the doors. And you kind of look around like, I don't see any fire, but if everybody else is running for the doors, I guess I should too, so here I go, right? And sometimes if we get caught up in what everybody else is saying and doing, we feel like, I don't really know why I'm doing it, but everybody else is, so it must be the right thing. Well, what Warren Buffett is saying here is, no, no, emotions, when it comes to your investment decisions, are not your friends, and really, you wanna be doing the opposite. So, when everybody's flocking to the newest trend or the hottest investment, that's actually time to be cautious. That's time to say, mm, is this really a good thing to invest my money in? And conversely, when everybody's panicking and, and running and saying, oh no, the world is over, and, and they're, they're, they're making these doomsday predictions, that's probably the time to say, hmm, this might be a good time to invest and to buy low. So, um, separate your emotions from the investment process. The two factors, letter B here, the two factors that should guide our investment decisions are time horizon and risk tolerance. The two factors that should guide our investment decisions, time horizon and risk tolerance. Now, what do we mean by that? Time frame is just how long are you gonna need, how long is it gonna be until you need to use this money? How many years is it gonna be before you reasonably expect to withdraw this money? Five years, 10 years, 20 years? Okay, the longer that is, the more growth oriented you should be, the shorter it is, the more conservative you should be. And then risk tolerance. You know, the, the market has ups and downs. It has swings, sometimes really wide swings, sometimes narrow swings, and everybody has a different comfortability with that. For some people, they don't like the big up and down. Right? They wanna keep it pretty small. And others are like, no, that's fine because the bigger swings also lead to bigger returns. It's kind of like this. It's like if you get on a plane and fly to New York and the pilot says, all right, folks, you got a choice here. We can get to New York in four hours with a lot of turbulence, or we can get to New York in, fi in, in five hours with medium turbulence, or we can get to New York in six hours with very minimal turbulence. Which one do you want? Well, it's a trade-off, right? More turbulence, get there faster. Less turbulence, takes longer. Similar idea with investing, the more uh, risk tolerance you have, the higher return you can expect to have, the lower risk tolerance, the lower return. Determine your strategy and stick to it. Check your emotions at the door. Number two, don't try to time the market. Don't try to time the market. 
Let me say it one more time. Don't try to time the market. <clears throat> All right, I've been there. You've been there. You're at the grocery store. You're at the drive-through. There's two lines. You got a split second to make a decision. Mm, that line's gonna go faster. You get in that line. If you're like me, 90% of the time, what happens? Your line is slower. What? Like, it was a 50-50 choice. How do I always get it wrong? In a similar way, investors are doing this 50-50 choice and getting it wrong. The market's only going to go one of two directions, folks. It's going to go up or it's going to go down. Those are the only options, right? And you would think, if I'm going to make a decision about buying or selling based on where I think it's going, is it going to go up? Is it going to go down? That it's a 50-50 proposition. I should get it right half of the time. But we still end up losing more often than we get it right. How is that possible? Well, let's look at some data, okay? Don't just take my word for it. Let's look at some research on this subject. First of all, on your handout there, you'll see this Dalbar study. Dalbar does a lot of research on investing. They looked at the time frame 1995 to 2014. It's a good 20-year chunk because you have both the tech bubble and the 2008-2009 crisis. And what they found is the average stock investor underperformed the market by a considerable margin. The average stock investor had a 5.19% return. Not terrible, not great, it's okay. <laughs> Meanwhile, the market during that same time, even going through the tech bubble and the 2008-2009 crisis, by the way, had a 9.85% return. That's a big difference. And it's even bigger when you consider compound interest because the average stock investor, let's say they had 10,000 in 1995 to invest in the market, at 5.19% by 2014, that's roughly $28,000, okay? Not bad, almost triple what they started with. But 9.85% with the market return during that time, 10,000 turns into 72,000, more than double that amount. I mean, that's a really wide gap. That's a big price to pay. Why? Why did stock investors do so much worse? Well, because there was a lot of events that happened in between that they tried to time and tried to buy and tried to make the right selections at the right time. And most of them did not do it consistently. If somebody tells you they can time the market consistently, okay, they're not telling the truth. Because either they're lying to themselves because they think they can do it, but they can't, or they know they can't, but they're just telling you they can anyway. Uh, another study was uh, by Bauer Dahlquist. This one's not on your handout. 2001, what they did is they took all these different market timing methods. So over the years, uh, investors have come up with all these different rules. Like, okay, when this happens, when these three key things happen, that's when you buy. And then when you see this, this is when you sell. And, you know, they have all these methods and algorithms that they've developed. They back-tested all of these different methods going back 75 years. And what they found is over 80% of the time, the market did better than the market timing methods did. Uh, in 2001 and 2008, end of the tech bubble, in the Great Recession, investors were selling record amounts of stocks at the very bottom. And I'm not just talking about like the average Joe investors, I'm talking about institutional investors, like big firms, really smart people, way smarter than me. They were selling out of stocks. That was the worst thing to do at that time. They were trying to time the market because they thought it was going to get even worse. Now, I know what you may be thinking. Okay, but Nate, my brother-in-law, my coworker, my neighbor, I mean, he told me that he knew what Tesla was gonna do last year. 
I mean, he knew, he saw Apple way back in the day, or he was, he was like one of the first people that bought Bitcoin. And man, they made so much money and they, okay, great, wonderful, honestly, very excited for them. That's great. But do you notice something? They will always tell you about the ones that they got right. You don't have to ask, okay? You can be talking about the weather like, oh yeah, so let me tell you about that one. <laughs> like they are, they're more than willing to tell you about the ones they got right but they're not gonna tell you about the ones they got it wrong, right? They're not gonna tell you about the stocks that they bought went nowhere or dropped in value. Um, it's not just enough to get it right one time. Like, I mean, unless like you literally bought like a thousand Bitcoins way back in the day, like unless you got super, super lucky, getting it right one time is not gonna do it. You have to be right, not just once or twice, or three. you have to be right consistently and you have to be right more often than you're wrong if you're actually going to be successful. And that's very, very, very difficult to do. But why is it so popular? Why do people continue to try to time the market? I think for two reasons. Number one, there's just a level of ignorance that people just are not aware of the track record of market timing. They think, no, no, this is what people do. This is good investing. And they're just not aware that that usually doesn't work. And then I think the other part is this competitiveness. I mean, come on, it's fun to want to win in investing, right? It's just that, that that drive in all of us that says, if I'm just clever enough, if I'm just skillful enough, if I just act on the right info, I can beat the rest of the crowd. And maybe you can, but probably not. Number three, set realistic expectations. Set realistic expectations. Now, um, I mentioned earlier, I have three children, five, three, and almost two. So it was not all that long ago that we were expecting our first child. And that's a really daunting experience. So those the parents in the room, you, you know what I'm talking about. Your first child is like, oh man, I'm gonna be responsible for another human being. Like, they don't come with a manual. What, what am I supposed to do with them? Um, and so we read the book, the classic book, What to Expect When You Are Expecting. Maybe you read that book before. And it just goes through like, you know, here's, here's, here's all the things, the check marks in a baby's life and just how, how, how to care, it's all the way down the line. And it makes you feel better, right? Cause you're like, okay, now I have at least somewhat of a reasonable idea on how to take care of this child, right? Because if you go into any new venture in life, whether it's a new baby, a new relationship, a new job, and you have unrealistic expectations, you're setting yourself up for disappointment. You're gonna be frustrated because you're gonna get into it and you'll be like, oh, this isn't what I thought it was gonna be. And investing is no different. If we're gonna jump into this world of investing but we don't know what to expect, we can find ourselves frustrated because, oh, this is not what I thought it was going to be, and then it can cause us to make a wrong decision at the wrong time. So what are the realistic expectations? What can we expect when it comes to investing? Well, uh, well, first of all, let's look at this quote here from uh, John Templeton. There's there in your, your booklet. The four most dangerous words in investing are, this time it's different. <laughs> uh, and uh, it, I, I love this quote because it's so true that we, we think that whatever we're going through is somehow so different than anything that's ever happened and we can throw all the playbook out the window. Everything that we've learned, all the evidence that we've amassed over time, throw it all out, it doesn't apply anymore, this is so different. And really, it's, it's not, okay? So, uh, what are the expe expectations? Letter A, market drops and all-time highs are not time to panic. Market drops and all-time highs, they are not time to panic. And I'll tell you why. Because the market drops a lot, okay? If you've been following it at all recently, you know this. Uh, market drops are, are pretty normal. So uh, there is a correction, 
By the way, a correction is a drop of 10% or more in the market. That's called a correction. That happens on average once a year. Now, it doesn't happen every year. Some years it happens three times. Sometimes it happens, some years it happens no times. But on average, it happens once a year. And then of those corrections, about one in five turn into a bear market. That's a drop of more than 20%. That's a really big drop. So every three to five years, on average, there's a bear market, a drop of 20% or more. So let's do some math here. If you're 25 and you're gonna retire at 65, 40 years, you should expect to see about 10 bear markets, about 10 times where the market's gonna drop over 20%. So when it happens, should that be shocking to us? Should that be, well, what's happening? This is the end of the world. I, I, you know, I gotta get out. No, 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 this is part of what you should expect. Now, when have we seen bear markets? Well, we just saw one in 2020 with coronavirus. That was a bear market, drop of more than 20%. But the last time before that, that we saw a bear market was 2008, 2009 with the Great Recession. So we went 11 years, no bear market. That's a really long run. That's not the norm. So uh, in years to come, when we see these things, we need to remember, okay, wait, wait, wait. This is normal. This is part of the expectation, but also all-time highs. Because you may see on the news or an article that says, market hits all-time high. And maybe there's a part of you that's thinking, hmm, that sounds bad. Like, tech bubble, like, if it's really, really high, is it about to, like, come crashing back down? Like, is this inflated somehow? Well, maybe it is, but it's probably not. Because the market hits an all-time high about once a month. Do you realize that? Because the market's doing this over time, and it's going up and up and up and up. So of course it's hitting all-time highs, like pretty, pretty regularly. The Dow Jones, people here talk about the Dow Jones Industrial Average. Back in 1920, it was 1,100 points. Today, it's 30,600 points, okay? So it's gone way up. So of course, along the way, it's gonna continue to hit all-time highs. So when you hear all-time high, please don't uh, panic and please don't think that that's time to, to do something drastic. Number two, this is, a, this is a very appropriate one for the time frame that we're in right now. Don't play politics with investing. Now, it's very tempting to do sometimes, but it usually doesn't work out well. Don't play politics. Now, and what I mean by this is please don't make investing decisions based on whether your candidate or your party won or didn't win or you think will win or think won't win. Because the evidence is clear over time that the market has continued to go up under both Democrats and Republicans, whether it's in the White House or in Congress. In fact, the stock market has done better under Democrat presidents. You say, well, wait, Nate, that, that doesn't make sense to me. Are you saying Democrats are better for the stock market? No. What I'm saying is, who's in the White House or who's in Congress is one of many factors that play into where the market is and how it's doing. Because it's not just who's in power, it's what are interest rates? What are mortgages doing? What are job rates doing? What's going on with international companies and international politics? And what's the price of oil? And what's the price of gold? And it's, it's this hugely complicated situation. And by the way, sometimes what's happening in the market is a result of policies that were put in place 10 years ago or 20 years ago. So sometimes what a, a, a Congress or, or, or a president will put in action won't be felt for many years to come. And so what I'm saying is, please don't make short-term decisions based on what's happening in politics now. 
We just saw a great example of this a few months ago. The election was uh, early November, November 3rd, I think. And based on, you know, either side, whatever, whatever your, 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 your bent was, if you were scared about what the result of the election was going to be, and so, you know what, I'm going to get out of stocks here because I think we're headed into a kind of a sketchy time. Well, that would have been a very poor decision because in November alone, that month, the stock market was up about 8 to 9% in one month. It had a great month. Back in 2016, right before the election, a lot of Republicans were very wary about, well, if Hillary Clinton, Hillary Clinton wins and it looks like she's going to win, that's going to be bad for the market. We should get out of stocks right now. But then Donald Trump won. And then Democrats were like, oh, no, Donald Trump's the president. That's going to be bad for our economy. The stock market's going to go down. We should sell stocks. Well, in both cases, it was wrong because 2017 was a phenomenal year for the stock market. What, what I'm saying is we don't know in the short term where things are going to go. And that by trying to make a decision just based solely on who's in political power, usually does not work because it's not as correlated as you may think it is. Letter C, recognize what drives investment performance. Recognize what drives investment performance. Again, I think the misconception can be that what drives investment performance is how well you pick stocks or how well you time things, and that's really not what drives it. You kind of, you know, you, you, you picture the guy that's got four computer screens and he's like all these charts that are like, you can't even read it. And, he's, and like, that's the guy who gets the investment performance because he, he knows the exact right time. the right, No, that's, that's really not what it is. What it is is your asset allocation. That's most of it. And what I mean by that is where, what categories are you putting your money in? Large stocks, small stocks, U.S., international growth or value, that's what really determines it. And so, so when, when it comes to what your investment performance will be, it's mainly a function of how much you have in stocks, how much you have in bonds, how the categories are set up, it's asset allocation. It's not somebody reading the tea leaves and making expert predictions and buys and sells. Okay, let's move on to letter D. Understand the role of financial media. Understand the role of financial media. <clears throat> okay. You would think that the more financial media you consume, the better you would be, right? And the more confident and super financial wizard you would become. Um, and it's really not the case. Because at the end of the day, financial media, whether it's a TV channel program, um, website, social media account. For the most part, financial media is, it's a for-profit business, and how do they make money? They make money through advertisement, right? The way other channels and media outlets do. That's their main source of income. So if they're gonna make money by advertisements, they've gotta get you to tune into their program, right? They gotta get you to watch, to click, to read, to listen. And what's going to get you to watch and to click and to read and to listen? Is it going to be have a diversified portfolio, invest for the long term, don't get too worked up about short-term market fluctuations? Is that very riveting television? <laughs> no, it is not. What is riveting is this guy predicted the 2008 crash, and here's three reasons why he says 2021 is going to be even worse. Oh, well, what, what does he have to say? I got I to gotta watch this. I got I to gotta read this article. Here are three stocks that could be like buying Apple in 1995. 
Ooh, wow, wouldn't that be great if I could buy Apple in 1995? Maybe I should look at these stocks. If I buy one of them, I could become really rich overnight. Fear and greed. That's what drives a lot of financial media. Now, uh, that's not to say that that's all that financial media is, that you never learn anything by consuming financial media. What I'm saying is be very cautious, be very careful, because their primary goal is to sell advertisements and to make money. All right, so they're going to try to use what they have at their disposal to get you to watch. And so that's the reason why they, they did a study. 67 to 75% of financial media consumers were shown to have higher stress levels after consuming financial media. You would think it would be the opposite, right? Like being more knowledgeable would help you be more confident, but it's, it's actually the, the opposite. All right. Um, let's go now to number four. Diversify. Diversify. I like this quote from Jack Bogle. Don't look for the needle in the haystack. Just buy the haystack. So don't try to get the one winner because it's very unlikely you, you'll be able to. Instead, buy the haystack, and then you'll have the needle in there, right? Uh, what is diversification? What do we mean? That's, that sounds like a big word. So diversification, letter A there, diversification, all that means is we're going to reduce risk, so we're going to take less risk, and we're going to maximize return. We're going to get a better return by spreading investments across different instruments. So I mean, what I mean by that is stocks bonds, precious metals, real estate, these would be different instruments. Industries, so technology, finance, healthcare, retail, transportation, and categories, large, small, US, international. Being a good investor is not about knowing, oh, this is the killer stock, this is gonna make you rich, put all your money in that. No, no, that's like breaking one of the most fundamental rules of investing. Don't put all your eggs in one basket, right? That's people, people, you've heard people say that. That's what we're saying here, diversify. Don't put it all in one stock, one industry, one category. Make sure you spread it across multiple different ones. And by doing so, you're going to reduce your risk, and you're also going to maximize your chance for a higher return. A lot more we could say on this. I'll leave you with this illustration. Imagine if I had a pencil here that I'm holding between my hands, and I said, come on up here and chop this pencil in two. Probably everybody in this room could do that. Apply enough force, you can break the pencil. But if I grabbed 10 pencils and wrapped them together and said, now break it, well, like unless you're like a karate teacher, I don't know if you're actually going to be able to do that. That's going to be a lot tougher to do. That's what diversification does. It it reduces risk and and maximizes return by, by spreading that out. Okay, quickly now, let's move to number five. I'm sorry. Focus on the the long term. Number five, focus on the long term. Good investing is like watching paint dry. Not very exciting because it takes a long time. Focus on the long term. Letter A, recognize the power of compound interest. Recognize the power of compound interest. Have you heard of the rule of 72? Ever heard of that before? So here's how it works, if if you're not familiar. You take your expected rate of return, divide it by 72, and that will tell you how many years it will take for your money to double. So if you've got your money, well, now you couldn't even get 2% in the bank, but you used to be able to. If you're getting 2% in a bank account, divide that by 72, it's 36. It's going to take 36 years for your money to double. It's a long time. And really, successful investing 
is getting compound interest and time on your side so that your money can double several times, and that's what allows you to really build up a sizable amount of money over time. But at an 8% return, divide that by 72, that's nine years. Your money would double every nine years. So let me give you a hypothetical um, example that will highlight the power of compound interest. Let's take two people. They're going to invest $2,000 every year for 20 years, and they're going to get an 8% return, which would be historically within the range of, of stock market return. I think that's a, a safe assumption. All right, 8% return for 20 years, $2,000 a year. So Johnny is person number one. He starts... He's 45 years old, $2,000 a year, 20 years, 8% return. When he turns 65 and retires, he has $98,800. Not bad, okay? More than twice what he started with. He, he only invested 40,000 of his money. The rest is interest over that time. Pretty good. But then we have Sally. She did the same thing, 20 years, $2,000 a year, 8% return, but she started at 25. And then when she turned 45, she didn't put another dollar into it. She just stopped. But by the time she would be 65, having those extra 20 years, that 40000 that she invested over 20 years has turned into $486,800. She has almost half a million. That's the power of compound interest and time. And that's why it's so important for us to get these on our side. So letter B, you have to start as soon as you can. Start as soon as you can. The quote there on your pamphlet is, the best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago. The second best time is today. I love that quote. Yes, the best time to get something grown is a long time ago. We say, well, Nate, but I didn't invest 20 years ago. Okay, but start now. Okay, yeah, you can't change the past, but you can change what you do today. All right. Start as soon as you can. Get as much time on your side as possible. Time, principle, rate of return. Those are the three factors that tell you what you're going to result with. Principle how much you invest, rate of return, the interest rate you get, and time, how long you invest. Of those three, the most important is time. Time is the most important. Get time on your side. Letter C, set it and forget it. Set it and forget it. To be a long-term investor, you're not going to get too caught up in the day-to-day -day news. You're not going to get worried when there's an all-time high. You're not going to get panicky when there's a correction or a bear market because you know that's what to expect. Instead, you're going to know what your goal is long-term and that you're invested for, for the long-term. So you don't get caught up in the day-to-day -day news and it takes emotions out of the equation. All right, lastly, number six, follow the evidence, not trends. Follow the evidence, not trends. Again, how to be a successful investor. Rules for successful investing. Follow the evidence, not trends. <clears throat> we have over 100 years of data to work with. So what have you learned about the nature of investing that will give us the greatest likelihood of success? Here's a good quote from Peter Lynch, as in Merrill Lynch. He says, there seems to be an unwritten rule on Wall Street. If you don't understand it, then put your life savings into it. Maybe you've known somebody like this. Maybe you've been the, the person that's done this, okay? Like, I don't know what that is. All chips in, I'm all in, all right? And, and of course, that's, that's, not, that's not the best use of our money. That's not the best use of our investing, okay? Um, there's always going to be a trend. There's always going to be something new people are trying, think is going to be you know, the, the latest and greatest. And it usually isn't, okay? But what does the evidence teach us? Well, letter A, the evidence teaches us that markets, stock markets are broadly efficient. Stock markets are broadly efficient. Say, so, Nate, what does that mean? It means that there are so many buyers and sellers and so much information that is readily available 
that whatever a stock's price is, whatever the market is at, is usually very close to what its actual value is. See, there was a time 50 years ago, 100 years ago, when there weren't a lot of buyers and sellers. And the information was very scarce, no internet. If you wanted to know a company's fundamentals, you had to actually get paper records and look at their balance sheet and look at their earnings reports. And it was, you know, who could do that? And so whatever it was trading for could potentially be pretty far from its actual value. Like, for instance, when, it, when I'm saying price and value, like, I have a Toyota Camry. I could price it at $100,000, but that's not its value. You see what I'm saying? Like, just because something's price is something doesn't mean that's what it's actually worth. And so with stocks, sometimes what you see is price and value are not the same thing. But because the markets are pretty efficient, because there's so many buyers and sellers, so much information that's out there, it's pretty hard to find examples where, oh, I spot a price of a stock that's really out of line with what its true value is. Now, sometimes, like the tech bubble, the whole group gets swayed, and we all start to move in that, that same direction. But for the most part, it's hard for any one investor to outsmart the rest. That's what we're saying here. Letter B, risk and return are correlated. Risk and return are correlated. If you want a greater return, you have to take on more risk. If you don't want to take on as much risk, you shouldn't expect as high of a return. They go together. You can't have one without the other. There is no such thing as a guaranteed risk-free 8% a year return. No, that's not how it works. If you've got $50,000 and you got two choices of what to do with it, I can put it in the bank or I can give it to my brother who's flipping a house and then he's going to split the profits with me. Well, which one's more risky? Your brother flipping a house, especially if it's my brother. That's really risky, okay? That's not going to work out well. But which one should have a potentially higher return. Flipping the house, right? Because the bank is pretty much a known entity. It's like, oh, I'm gonna get 0.01% basically, right? Risk and return go together. So, so if we wanna have a higher return, we have to understand and be comfortable with taking on a higher degree of risk. And usually risk, what we mean by risk, is higher fluctuation. Year to year, short term, how much it's gonna swing up and down. Letter C, keep costs low. Again, what does the evidence say? What does the evidence say as far as what makes for good investing? See, in life, the rule usually is you get what you pay for, right? You want a better house, better car, nicer clothes? Well, it's going to cost more, right? So we, we kind of have that attitude of, oh, I pay more, should be getting more. But investing is really the exception to that rule. Very rarely does higher cost actually mean higher return, because we might be tempted to think, oh, if I really pay for this high-end, really complicated type of investment, maybe that will get a better return than, than the rest. And usually that's not how it works. So this is something that's in all of our control. It's easy to control. Commissions, fees, management costs, these can really add up and they eat away at our return. So even a 1% difference, a 1% additional cost in our investing because of compound interest, that really adds up over time. And that can make a huge difference, tens of thousands, sometimes even hundreds of thousands of dollars over time. So, I'm not saying you can never, there's, there's never, um, you know, costs that are, are justified to investing. What I'm saying is, as much as possible, try to keep your costs low. That's what the evidence teaches us. And then letter D, passive approach. Usually outperforms an active approach. Passive approach usually outperforms an active approach. Again, we're working off the evidence. What, is, what does history teach us? What does the evidence show? And by the way, passive, what I mean by that is, one method of investing is, sometimes people call it an indexing method, where you basically try to uh, uh, mimic the market's return as a whole. 
okay? Whether it's the S&P 500 or, or whatever index you're using, I'm just basically, whatever the market return is, that's what I'm gonna try to get. I'm gonna have the same investments that are in the market as a whole at, with the, at the same proportion, and I'll just get what the market return is. That's a passive approach. An active approach is, I'm gonna try to beat the market. I'll try to pick better stocks, use a different method, a better method to, do, to outperform. And, and what we found is that usually the active approach doesn't beat the market. That the people that are really smart, experts, know the ins and outs of the market really well and do their best to beat the market, they usually are not able to do it, especially over the long term. Now, there's something called the SPIVA reports, S&P index versus active. That's, that's what SPIVA stands for, where they just show, okay, here's all the active funds where people try to beat the market, and here's how they've done compared to the market. And what you'll see is the vast majority of them underperform. They don't beat the market average. Why is that? Well, as we've said, the market's efficient, so it's really hard to spot those ones where the price and value are out of line. Timing the market is very difficult. We've already talked about that, so they're usually not able to do that. And then they cost more because they have to be paid, they have to be compensated for their work, and so they have higher costs associated with their management. So not only do they have to get the market return, then they also have to do better than that to cover the cost of their fees. And that's why over time, most times the active approach does not outperform the market. So we've covered a lot in these sessions. I hope that you found one, two, three things that you've written down either in the first session or in this session that you can use. I will leave you with this quote from Ben Franklin, an investment in knowledge pays the best interest. Investment in knowledge pays the best, best interest. See, this is what I do for a living and I'm always learning. Like, I'm always figuring out things that I didn't know before. Being a good manager of God's money requires us to be humble, requires us to be teachable, and we should always look for opportunities to learn and to grow in our knowledge. So uh, let me just throw out one thing, and I, I, I say this really because I, I think it may be a good resource for you as far as learning. So, so if you found these sessions helpful, I do uh, a podcast called Financial Pathway where I talk about different financial topics and, and, and dive deep, whether it's investing or personal finance. So if you would think that would be helpful, I'd encourage you to, to use that as a resource. There's many great resources out there, whether it's podcasts, blogs, shows, programs, curriculum, you name it. There's a lot of great resources out there and I would, I would encourage you to avail yourself to them as much as possible. Thank you for listening to Messages from Liberty. Tune in next week for more Bible teaching or subscribe on iTunes to stay up to date with our current series.